Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of In Our 1990s. We made it to week two, Hadrian. Uh, yeah, we, we totally did. And uh, as as last week, I am uh, your host, Natalie, and my co-host, Hadrian, is with me, who you just heard. Yep. And we are back to rank two more alternative albums from the 1990s. Um, if you remember last week, we ended with... Uh, Monster by R.E.M. being the best alternative album of the 1990s, and uh, Manscaped by Wire being the worst. And no matter how some of us might feel about that ranking, we have to soldier on and rank some more albums. You're the only one who's bothered by it. My feelings are valid. Mm. Well, anyway, we have two more (laughs) albums to rank this week, and uh, the first one we're going to do is... A massive, massive hit, and maybe if you don't live in the United States, I don't know, this might not even count as alternative if you live in England, but we're going to start off with What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis, and um, after that we will be covering the polar opposite in terms of British press reaction in 1995 uh, with The Philosophy of Momus by Momus, Um, but... Yeah, let's just go ahead and get right into What's the Story, Morning Glory, Oasis's 1995 album, uh, the follow-up to Definitely Maybe, and I guess at the time seen as not as good as Definitely Maybe, which I don't get that at all. Well, it's the 90s wasn't really feeling spangly pop music in this way. Like Oasis kind of opened the door to be like, what if we just sounded like this and because there were bands who were messing with this sound prior to them but what's the story morning glory sort of like opens the door to be like what if everything just is a little airy very just like beat driven and makes you think of both the stooges and the beatles at the same time and like because that was all like, you we, when we were first talking about this we talked about how this album was compared to the beatles a lot and i get it and i think <laughs> Strangely enough, my favorite song on the album, which is Champagne Supernova, is the most Beatles-like, but I hear a lot of, like, the Velvet Underground and the Stooges in some of their arrangement. It's just made more poppy. Yeah, I feel like for all the Beatles comparisons that Oasis gets, and, you know, rightfully so, and, and they invite a lot of it, I don't hear it that much in their music. no. Like, maybe Revolver-era Beatles? I've, I've never been quite clear on just exactly... Well, at least up to this point in their career, like, exactly why they got the reputation of, like, oh, they're just the Beatles. Whether it was just the British press jumping on them and saying, oh, this is our new... um, The new massive export hit-making band that we have, even though it never really came to that in America... This is a collection of men of varying attractiveness. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, especially on this album, they sound way more like Morrissey to me than the Beatles. See, I, I don't, I don't get that, but I guess I can, I can hear it now that you've said it. But like, I think there's more just like overall history of British pop music happening in in this album, which is probably why it was such a ridiculous success because it's just. It's ubiquitous in a weird way. 
It's like, there's nothing about this album that's particularly objectionable. There's nothing about it that I personally feel is worth the massive amount of praise that it got because it all kind of sounds samey. But that's nothing wrong with that. You put it on, you're listening to that Oasis album, and it just flows. Yeah, it's... uh, I've listened to the album, I think, three or four times to prepare for this. And I've had a different reaction to it every time. Not in terms of, like quality but just how how engaged i could get with it uh the last time i listened to it was this morning and i found myself liking it a lot more like probably the most i've liked it of all the times i've listened to it um some one of the other times i listened to it i was like this is good but inoffensively boring and it's good audio wallpaper um today i i got into like i said i got into it a lot more but the one thing that holds me back with this album and with all Oasis albums is the lyrics. Oh yeah, no, it's really bad. It's like, what is the the line in Champagne Supernova? It's like slow like a cannonball or something like i think this is faster than a cannonball. Faster than a cannonball, but then slow. It's like slow is like immediately after that. I'm like, but what? It's no, and then just all of oh god, what is that song? She's Electric has some of the worst lyrics in a song I have ever fucking heard because they're trying, it's all rhyming and it's just several lines of them yes. rhyming. And I'm just like, even, like, I want John Lennon to come and just bitch slap you because that's not how you do poetic lyrics whatsoever. Yeah, there's no poetry whatsoever to any of these songs, even. You know, Champagne Supernova, which is one of the better ones. Don't look back in anger. It, the it, so it feels to me that they're a band with two modes lyrically. It's either dumb guy profundities, or it's well, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was just nonsense, right? So if we just write nonsense, we'll be like the Beatles. Well, let me let me. This... She's Electric is very much in the we'll just write nonsense and we'll be like the Beatles mode. Well, here's here's these these two these two paragraphs. She's got a brother, we don't get on with one another, but I quite fancy her mother, and I think that she likes me. She's got a cousin, in fact, she's got about a dozen. She's got one in the oven, but it's nothing to do with me. I turned the fucking song off. <laughs> I couldn't deal with it anymore. That line in particular is is really bad. So I had a whole... I'm glad that we're just gonna hang out on She's Electric for a while, because <laughs> I also had a lot to say about these lyrics. Um... I really like the music in She's Electric. I think it's quite good. Oh, yeah, the music's great. The song um, is terrible. The lyrics. It, it's so, at the beginning of the song, he says, what is the line, since you have it pulled up, the line is like, she's, she's eclectic. She's electric. She She's in a family full of eccentrics. Yeah, then what's the next line after that? And she's done things I never expected, yes, and okay. I need more time. It doesn't even fucking rhyme. She's done things, so why is the song not about the things she's done that you've never expected? Why? Why do you then just go on to say that you that why just to talk about the other members of her family in one line each? Yeah, she's got a sister, and God and God only knows how I've missed her. And on the palm of her hand is a blister, and I need more time. Yeah, what? What? what the, why? You need more time? What the? And this is very much it, like there's a lot more of that type that type of lyrics on definitely maybe. Um, like the song Supersonic, oh my god. Even though that's probably my favorite song on Definitely Maybe, and I kind of like it more than a lot of the songs on this album, but god, the lyrics are just ass. 
And the, like, <sighs> but then, so the song before she's electric, Cast No Shadow, mm-hmm. that's like the opposite end of the spectrum where it's, it's just, you know, when they took his soul, they stole his pride. Yeah, you don't say. You, you, you lose your pride if you lose your soul. It's just like, if we just say the word soul, it'll sound really profound and really deep and like we're really saying something. And I'm sure like if you're 14 and hearing this, you're like, yeah, man, if you lose your soul, you lose your pride, man. Here's a thought for every man who tries to understand what is in his hands. He walks along the open road of love and life, surviving if he can. Surviving if he can. <laughs> Bound with all the weight of all the words he tried to say. Chained to all the places that he never wished to stay. Bound with all the weight of all the words he tried to say. As he faced the sun, he cast no shadow. Like, fucking, just eat a dick, Oasis. I don't, like... It's, it's As legend- he faced the sun, he cast no shadow. Legendarily bad lyricists. Um, I, I have a hard time thinking of other rock bands or alternative bands who I think are worse lyricists overall. I would almost defend Brian Malko's lyrics over this because at least Brian Malko goes for some shit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I, like, it, and this is a, an ongoing thing in our relationship that, that placebo is fine, but goddamn, I hate their lyrics. But yeah, it, it he's trying to say something. And it's it, he, he would Brian Malto would tell you what weird shit that girl has done. Oh yeah, because that would be the whole song. And the, he might say it in really embarrassing ways, but he'd tell you about it, and that's way better than, man, this girl she's fucking crazy. Her mom likes me. It's like, like you miss the story. You miss the story, Noel. It's like oh, I don't kind of want to fuck her mom. Like please no. Also, maybe write that song. There's plenty of those songs yeah, around. Yeah, but Noel, and- Noel Gallagher's "Me and Mrs. Jones." <laughs> what is it like Stacy's mom also uh, yeah yeah I mean that song's catchy in a way that I hate but it's catchy and I'll listen to it probably um so yeah I mean that's really all you can say about Oasis's lyrics is they're terrible and sometimes they're terrible because they're trying to be deep and just falling on their face and sometimes they're terrible because they sound like I know Oasis has done drugs. I know they've done a lot of drugs, but they sound like people who have never done drugs trying to write songs about doing drugs. Yeah, and it just and and this would get worse on their next album, uh, "Be Here Now," well, we, with the with a song called "Magic Pie," and we'll have to review that album eventually. <laughs> hopefully, not this fucking year. No, I no. cannot do another <laughs> Oasis song or album. In at least six months, just... Which, and it's a shame, because again, with different lyrics, this would be an al- one of my... This might be one of my favorite albums of the 90s, with better lyrics and a better vocalist. Like, I, I don't hate Liam Gallagher's voice, but it's very whiny. Ah, oh, fucking Wonderwall. There's a reason no one wants anyone to sing Wonderwall, because <laughs> what what octave is that in? It's he sings very whiny, high. It's in, in it's in whiny boy voice. That's like all it is. I was trying to sing it, and I've been, I'm a trained soprano originally, and I can't I cannot hit the note. I, I definitely cannot sing Oasis songs. They're they're way too high for me. Well, the thing is, I'm trying to find the the. the so the, when you're singing, there's a, there are ways that you hold your mouth that you make a sound. And he is always singing with an up and an uh, out, yeah, and it's yeah. very hard to get a clear note. 
when you're doing that, so that's why it's hard to figure out what note he's actually singing, because it is too, it's too broadened. Um, and I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I also hate people who say chew and chore in songs, which some of my favorite musicians do that, and it makes me very mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they also say, so my, my issue with, with British accents on this album is that in champagne supernova it, it, he says supernova and supernova it will pick one look sometimes a sounds are hard at the end of words yeah i guess i guess it's just i'm i'm ignorant and i don't understand why british people what, what the mechanics are of pronouncing words that end in a as ending in r but it's just it's a, a speed thing because even uh Julie Andrews in the film Relative Values, the one of the her 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 character's son is bringing home this American actress whose name is Miranda, and she says Miranda half the time, <laughs> and this is Julie Andrews. So <laughs> yeah, well, so let's talk about the music then, um, because I, I think we've bled the lyrics dry. Um, I, I think this is the height of Oasis's powers musically. It, like definitely maybe is it might be really good but i don't know because it is so horrifically badly produced i hate the way that album sounds so much it is loud for the sake of loud it's not good loud it's just they multi-tracked the rhythm guitar over and over and over with chorus and so it just has the seasick loudness to it yeah and I was really surprised that Morning Glory is produced by the same producer, uh, Owen Morris. Well, and Noel Gallagher. And and to be fair, there were several producers on Definitely Maybe, and Morning Glory is all Owen Morris and Noel Gallagher. But it's it, it sounds crazy to call this album stripped down, <laughs> and, and it's definitely not in the grand scheme of things. But listen to the to Definitely Maybe and then Morning Glory, and it sounds like their MTV unplugged like they've stripped back the needless multi-tracking of the rhythm guitar <laughs> that just it, I mean it, like I love shoegaze music I love albums where all the instruments just kind of blend together but I don't love it when it's just for the sake of how loud can we get this yeah because they're, they're, they're not doing the the layering with intent to make a ethereal effect or a smoky sound or experimental effect i yeah. mean the experiment is can we be louder and yes they can and no one needs that like <laughs> yeah so more so morning glory you can actually hear the riffs and and like if you liked this kind of this kind of music, this kind of vaguely sixties ish British rock and roll, like Noel Gallagher has some some great riffs for you. And fortunately, on this album, you can hear them because he didn't feel the need to multi-track his rhythm guitar fifty times on every song. And it, it's I appreciate it, and it really lets. I mean, again, this is where I really feel. Like, I want to see the alternate universe where he can write lyrics, too, because um, it just like the songwriting really like shines through on this album. It's just that half of the writing is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's I just I, I described it to you as this album is like uh, when you like wanting a chocolate bar 
and like I described it as a Hershey's bar of of, of music mm-hmm. because it's like you know what a Hershey's bar tastes like you you know when you want one and you, and you definitively know when you don't want one and I think that's kind of the stages you were going through listening to this album it's like you you didn't really want one when you started this morning you're like man Hershey's bar sounds pretty good yeah and like that's fine and I just think I understand why it was such a popular album I understand why Wonderwall won't die. I understand. Yeah, Wonderwall, I mean, it's a meme. Uh. You know, the, the guy at the party with the acoustic guitar playing Wonderwall. Like, every, it's it's the joke and the cliche. And it's that for a reason. Also, it's a fucking good song. I don't like it. <laughs> Except I, for the lyrics. <laughs> I See, I'm a very... This is why my love of placebo fell off. Because I was like, oh, Brian. I, mm. But I still listen to them. But I fell off a lot of people who can't write lyrics, and... It's another way that I've been trained by... I mean, the the first band that, that I got super, super into was New Order, and New Order's lyrics are also really bad most of the time. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I kind of learned young, just I don't give a fuck about lyrics. Like, they don't stand out to me unless they're really terrible or really great. And otherwise, I'm just probably not paying attention to them. So, like... Oasis's lyrics are bad, but they're not. And I'm probably contradicting myself. They're not bad in a way that they always jump out. Like "Cast No Shadow" is just I, I don't hear the lyrics unless I'm specifically paying attention. Like "She's Electric," those lyrics are bad enough to stand out. Yeah, and they're making they're and they're very proud of the lyrics that she's she's electric. <laughs> you can so. hear the the lyrics a lot more on this album than you could on Definitely Maybe, which really hurts it. It definitely does because uh, there's even even Wonderwall has some just questionable lines. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's bad. Like, and that's just I think that's what's killing me with this coming going back to it is that I just I wasn't really into Oasis at the time, and now that I have some distance from listening to Oasis re- regularly, I'm just like, ah, this is. This would never have been popular if this if they had started making this album right now. <laughs> like this, I don't, don't think that would ever would have happened. We would be in a Wonderwall-less world, <laughs> and I would love that world. I don't know. I think Wonderwall would still be ahead. I don't think so. I think there's enough of like, and and I'm gonna show my deep ignorance of like current pop music, but who's the who's the guy that does acoustic music? Sort of the redheaded guy, Ed Sheeran. Yes. Like, there's enough... Well, see, Ed Sheeran can write lyrics, though, so that's... Uh, I mean, I'm sure his lyrics are better than Noel Gallagher's. A little bit, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think Wonderwall would have been a hit. I think Champagne Supernova, like, that one wasn't really a hit, I don't think, in America, because it's probably just too long. It is too long, and it's it's the most beatly. It's the most unlike other Oasis songs, in a weird way. It's just... They're just... It's really just them showing off, like, things they can do. Yeah, I mean, it has the problem that a lot of their songs have, which is we wrote two verses and no bridge, but that's all right because we're going to repeat the chorus 75 times at the end of the song. But you want that. It's one of the few songs where that works. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think that, personally, I think Don't Look Back in Anger is a better song. Maybe the best Oasis song I have a, some, some conflicting opinions about that song just for how much it would not leave my head this week. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's real good. And I saw um, a few months ago, I saw Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds live, and and about half the set is Oasis songs when you see him, and he's very bitter about it and talks a lot of shit to you, the audience, for wanting to hear them. <laughs> um, but he did Don't Look Back in Anger, and it was like the highlight of his set. And you know, as much as I hate to hate to say, oh, you know, his none of the new stuff was memorable compared to that, but it. It was not. I mean, don't look back in anger. For most of the audience, he, he did Wonderwall and that stole the show. But for me, it was like, yeah, don't look back in anger is real fucking good. Whether or not it's Noel or Liam singing it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that he can find some agonizing success playing the hits of his youth. Yeah, man, he fucking hates doing it and feels <laughs> like he is a lounge act. And he well, when you're is not shy about Corgan, it. You might as well be a lounge act. Yeah. I don't know. I felt worse for AFI at that show because they got to play like three songs before Oof. they got booted off stage. So I forgot even AFI was going <laughs> to be at that show. <laughs> um, okay. So what else do we have to say about this album? Oh, so I want to talk about the British press and their reaction because that's going to be relevant to the second album okay. we do. Um, so I guess at the time this was released, it was kind of had got lukewarm reviews and they were saying, oh, you know, it's, it's disappointing after definitely maybe. But then I guess like the British press being the British press, like turned around really fast on it and suddenly it was the greatest album in, ever released. And Well, I think Wonderwall got picked up at football games. Pro- uh, you know, probably so. And I mean, because that's usually what turns an album around. It's like... This very easily sung song gets picked up at a, at a football crowd. So what's really interesting to me is that Wonderwall the, was the fourth single off this album. What was the They first? released, some might say, Roll With It and Morning Glory were the first three. Then Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger and Champagne Supernova, the, the three best singles. Yeah. Which they didn't, at least She's Electric wasn't one of those fucking songs. I mean, yeah, I think that song they is... Knew. They musically, do. that song is good enough to be a single. Um, that song is very Smithsy musically. Just, but so what's interesting to me about this is that the first song on the album. Gotta look at the title. It's "Hello," right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. "Hello," co-written by Gary Glitter. Maybe the second most notorious pedophile in England after Jimmy Savile. Yeah. Yeah, so I was co-writing talking- a song with Oasis in '95, and the British press, to my knowledge, said nothing. Of, they certainly didn't say this band must be condemned. Well, so he was he was kind of known as a monster, but wasn't hadn't been convicted as a monster at that point. Okay, he hadn't by no, that time. No, it was like in the early 2000s when they're finally like, "Hey, Gary Glitter oh, okay. fucks children." Yeah, I thought like, that happened much earlier than. than no, he's always been did. fucking creepy, but it was more of like Savile was always fucking creepy, and yeah, no one really did anything about it, and then yeah. the glitter got got caught. Um. But he, so in the 70s, the Gl- Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band uh, were, like, just known as pop smiths. They could, Gary Glitter could touch something, he could write the worst lyrics in the fucking world, and you would dance to it and it would sell. Like, do you want to touch me? It's like, 
the lyrics are, do you want to touch me? Do you want to touch me there? Where? There? Yeah. Those are the lyrics of, do you want to touch me? Yeah. So I mean, Gary Glitter's biggest hit song has really no lyrics. Yeah. But he could, he could write, he was good at like putting music together and making something cohesive. And Hello really feels that way. And so that doesn't surprise me knowing that hearing it, thinking about how it sounds now. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and and there's definitely some some glamminess on on this record. Yes, there is, and I think that they wanted to do that because there's. That's why I said I felt there was more uh, Lou Reed and the Stooges in in this album than just the Beatles because there's some very especially Hello has some very like. American side of glam sort of hook to it and I, I accept it. The the underappreciated side projects of glam. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'd push back on the Stooges a little bit just because this album is nowhere near as high energy as anything the Stooges ever did. No, the, but slower Stooges songs. It's definitely... It, it's, it's in... I forgot. I, I should have written it down. There's just one song that just very much had... Hey, this is this is very close to a Stooges song. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you have a lot of other stuff to say? I feel like this is a really good Britpop record, a really historically important Britpop record for the '90s. But I just I don't have. It doesn't inspire me to really want to like wax poetic about it's in, fine. anything on the record i mean it, it's completely fine um i don't think it's worth listening through all in one setting like listen to the songs that you like from it don't listen to she's electric and do do listen to she's electric it's a it's a fun song ugh. with terrible lyrics you know what I, I can think of worse english lyrics hikaru tata's album that she released in specifically in the united states has worse lyrics but, than than Oasis. But English isn't her first language, so therefore she gets a pass. No, she does not get a pass for Easy Breezy, which is the worst lyrics I've ever heard in a song. Okay. I, I mean, I would just be like, if... English- we're, we're not going to get to talk about that record for the show because it came out in like 2005. I would need someone to feel my pain about how terrible the lyrics to Easy Breezy are. <laughs> I hate that song... I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. It's worse than worse lyrics than anything Oasis. Oasis at their worst is better than that song. I could also argue that there's some Coldplay songs that are way worse. Yeah, um, I, I don't think I think Coldplay's lyrics are usually better than Oasis. Not by much. Did Coldplay do that? So she's all yellow song. Yes. Yeah. Fuck that song. Yeah, we don't get to talk about Coldplay on the show either. We could have a really good fight about them. <sighs> Okay, well, so what do you think on ranking? Oh, I think it's the best album in the 90s right now. Yeah, I was hoping that we'd be able to argue about that, but I mean, I think this completely smokes Monster as an album. It's better than Manscaped, you know, I'll I'll admit that as well. Um, Not lyrically, definitely not lyrically. Um, But hey, you know, it didn't make you think about Dick Thrusty. (laughs) It's not Michael Stipe. And uh, members of our audience are going to thank you so much for bringing that image back. I, that image is going to come up for a while. Oh. It's going to come up for a while. And ladies and gentlemen, you're hearing our divorce. 
via this podcast. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, right now, this is the best album of the, of the best alternative album of the '90s, uh, easily better than than last week's offerings. Yes. Um, but can that hold? Will Will it still be the best album of the '90s by the time we finish the show? Stick around and find out. We are back, and we just finished ranking Oasis's What's the Story Morning Glory as the new number one alternative album of the 90s, ahead of Monster and Manscaped. And now we're going to move on to an album I am extremely excited to talk about, and that is The Philosophy of Momus, the 1995 album by Momus. And if you have never heard of Momus, and there's a real good chance that if you were not close friends with either one of us, that you haven't. Um, or friends with Momus. Uh, yeah, or friends with, <laughs> or, or you're British or, or a Japanophile. Those are also edge cases where you could hear of, where you might have heard Momus's music. He is a, once would have been described as a singer-songwriter. Um, he started his career in the 80s doing sort of acoustic depressing acoustic guitar music and then discovered synthesizers around like 1986 or 87 and then sort of gradually got more and more into being a synth pop artist well actually he started as a in a scottish art rock band true true because he was in the same group the same area as like peter capoli and orange juice orange juice and Joseph, uh, K. Joseph K. His his band was called the Happy Family. Uh, what is that? The guy Craig Ferguson, uh, Craig Ferguson, and Peter Paul, Peter Capaldi were also in a uh, Glaswegian art rock band. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he is his real name is Nick Curry, and he is the brother of a member of another band. We'll probably talk about on here, Delamitri. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I always, I know it and I always forget it because it's, well, mostly because I don't think about Delamitri, but uh, yeah, I was really shocked to find out that like this guy who makes these incredibly weird, obscure synth pop records is like his brother is in a much more mainstream band than him. Um, So he's, we could talk just about him and his biography for the entire show. And it's really, if you, if you don't know him, like look into him. Listen to his whole discography. He actually has a memoir coming out later this year. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, so... I will look forward to reading that because he's a super interesting guy, a super controversial guy at times in his life. Um, and that was why we wanted to do one of his albums alongside an Oasis album because as much as the British press fucking loved Oasis, they fucking hated Momus in the 90s. <laughs> And I highly recommend, if you can find it on his website, he has, like, basically press clippings from his old albums. And, like, just read some of the shit that was written about him in the 90s in album reviews, (laughs) where they spend the whole time, like, calling him a disgusting pedophile and, like, refusing to believe that the controversial lyrics he writes are not his own diary. And that, like, oh, yeah, sure, he doesn't mean it. Sure, he's just singing as different characters. This this was after uh, 
Hippopotamus was banned, right? Yes. Yeah, he's, so, he's gotten a couple of albums banned and due to lawsuits. <laughs> yeah, well, Hippopotamus was just banned outright for obscenity. So, but I think the main reason was because Michelin objected to the song Michelin Man, and that kind of got got it into a court. Yes. And then later he had um, the Red Song book had to be removed from shelves because Wendy Carlos sued him. And uh, that she did. Yep. And I mean, well, as a trans person, um, I don't find that song particularly offensive. No, I, as a trans person, neither do I. <laughs> uh, but. I understand completely why she sued him because she's very private. And if you're Wendy, if you're Wendy Carlos, you defend yourself. Right. And so the reason just to, because it is, I I wouldn't get into this really if it weren't relevant to the album a little bit. Um, The reason the British press, I think started hating him so much was because in the early nineties, around 91, 92, he sort of had a, well, he didn't sort of have. He definitely had a romantic encounter with a teenage girl who he went on to marry. They're not together anymore. But um, And yeah, because she was 17 and then there ended up being a whole thing that her family kidnapped her to get her away from him and hid her in Bangladesh. And yeah, then around the time this album came out they had just gotten married so he wrote so this is my favorite period of momus from 92 to 95 uh the albums time lord and voyager the two that preceded this one are my two favorite momus albums and i like the philosophy of momus a whole lot so time lord was an entire album about about what he was going through with uh, with uh, his fiance being kidnapped and it's incredibly miserably depressing and awesome. Yeah. Um, and so this, there is another song about her on this album. I had a girl, but but by this time they were like back together and he was happy, which I think accounts for why this isn't always the strongest album. Maybe. No, and I mean this is when so I really like the Poison Boyfriend, and I. And then I really like Don't Stop the Night. But I'm not the biggest fan of Voyager and Time Lord. I, I'm not... Um, we're going to talk about both of those at some point. Yes. Um, This one, this album starts veering back in, in the direction of moments that I like. But there's still a lot of that Voyager sound left in it. And I think I was kind of burnt out on that whole period of 90s music that just sounded like you turned on a synthesizer and got tripped out yeah voyager is it's almost a religious album it's it's for a guy who supposedly or i mean apparently doesn't do drugs it's a very druggy album yeah and i mean there's nothing wrong with it it's just if i choose to listen to something that's not what i want to listen to but with with the philosophy of moments there's things that he starts veering back into that just weird sound. And so it starts with, like, Toothbrush Head, which is, I know you hate, but it's... Mom is doing a bad blues song. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I swear I read this, and I was not able to dig it up again. I thought I had read an interview with him where he said that originally the idea for this album was to be basically his mellow gold. Like, he had heard Beck and got way into it and was like, I'm going to write a Beck album. And that then he wrote, like four back songs and was like 
that's all I have in me. <laughs> I, so I, I couldn't find that. I mean, he definitely acknowledges that Beck was like a huge influence on him at this time and that he meant for like Toothbrush Head especially to sound like Beck. But okay. I can't find the comment that I made. I mean, maybe I dreamed it up, but I can't find anywhere that he actually said I just couldn't write a whole Beck album. But so, yeah, that's the the weakness of this album if it has one is that it is extremely it takes a very hard turn after about the first six songs into <laughs> yeah. being a totally different style of music it, it's more in, in in keeping with like uh time lord, lord. Time lord uh <laughs> halfway down the album uh but i mean i like the the inventiveness of it i mean i i hated toothbrush head when i first heard it now i'm just like okay i'm kind of into this even though it's a a bad blues song. I appreciate him doing something different. It's kind of like Folktronic's my favorite Momus album. Yeah. It's like all over the place with tonally. And then The Madness of Lee Scratch Perry. I also didn't like that song very much the first time I heard it. And I first heard this album over a decade ago. Yeah. Um, now I like, I like that song too. But what I can't get out of my head now is that the ba- the that funk 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 sound is you mean the boing 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 sound? yes the, the boing 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 is I think the exact same sample Tori Amos used in Happy Workers for the Toys soundtrack because um, that song has so much like Happy Workers in it and you can't find that song anywhere so good luck trying to find it but also my favorite Tori Amos song <laughs> I swear I have something by her with that song on it. It's not on the Toys soundtrack, apparently, even though it was... I think she put it on a single as a B-side. But yeah, so that song, so it, so, so you go from like a Beck song to something that is him trying to sing in a Jamaican accent, but sounding very Scottish. Anytime he tries to do an accent, it's... It just becomes Scottish. It, like, Psychopathia Sexualis, his, his <laughs> terrible American accent that he does in that song. Yeah, that's Georgia by way of Scotland. This is Jamaica by way of Scotland. and I liked The Madness of Lee Stretch Perry a lot. I, I do think that the the boing, boing, boing for the hi-hat, basically. For the, for the, basically for the hi-hat in the song, he uses a, spring, a cartoon spring sound <laughs> yes. effect. And I don't understand it. And it's the kind of shit that he just can't stop himself from doing. Because it's madness. It's madness, Natalie. <laughs> That was the whole point. Um, that, that, that's, but that brings up another thing with, um, what is that song? A Girlish Boy. Another song where he can't help himself by insert from <laughs> inserting something that breaks a song. I don't think Boing 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 breaks the madness of Lee Scratch no, it... but the goddamn fucker I want to be left alone sample in Girlish Boy <laughs> breaks that song. I, I don't like it. I hate it so much. Yeah, I, I'm okay with that song. I think we had a, a very we had different opinions because I think you, I get the feeling that's maybe your least favorite song in this album, and I hate Withinity. I I cannot stand that song. I like Withinity a lot because it's just it's just a bouncy, nonsense lyrics, and Momus doesn't make bouncy songs with nonsense lyrics. But well, he, he does now. He does now, but this is a more of a pop direction bouncy song with nonsense lyrics and I liked it it just feels it's like a, yeah this is a you can have that song in the background while you're cleaning or yeah doing see something. I can't it's it's all and I can I can't hear. have a girlish boy on 
Yeah. Even though it starts off sounding like a Stuart Copeland like song for the Spyro soundtrack, <laughs> which I should be all about. And then it's just, God damn, fuck, I wouldn't be left alone. And, like, and then he starts like uh, pitch shifting the sample where it's like, God damn it, you fucker. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, so within it is one of, so really there are about six songs on the album that sound like they were inspired by Beck. And mm-hmm. I feel like if you took those off and made them an EP, Philosophy of Momus would be like easily. I mean, it's it would easily be my third favorite Momus album without those. Yeah. Um, because there are 19 songs on this album. Yes. Yeah, so, so is... if you take off the six failed Beck songs, you have a full synth pop album. Yeah, and when and that's I think that's why this it was, took me so long to get through this. I don't think I listened through this album entirely more than a couple times in the week because I'd get halfway through it and just be like, oh, this fucking thing is not over yet. No, it takes, I mean, it takes that hard turn. The the song Virtual Valerie is like, well, in Quark and Charm, the Robot Twins is a synth pop song. It's kind of a, I like it, but it's kind of, it's super repetitive, super craftworky. There's a, there's a a lyrical convention that Momus uses throughout this entire album where he, Either he inserts the the lyric, the title of the song, as a f- follow up fr- uh, line, so it's like "Quark and Charm, the Robot Twins," and then yeah, the it's cab- like the the cabinet of uh, Kaneyoshi Kaneko, Kaneko just like repeating that shit over and over. Yeah, and I was like, it like every like stanza in, yeah. ends with "Quark and Charm, the Robot Twins." Da 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 da. Quark and Charm, the Robot Twins. Yeah. Da da da. And it's like there's no chorus in the song. It's just that for like. Three, three and a half, four minutes. It's like um, a chocolate orange and a clockwork pair. Clock and chocolate yeah. robot. I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, and that's another song I have to kind of like skip. If I'm not in the mood for that song, I can't listen to it. The only song that I have to just like not listen to is Girlish Boy. But yeah, there was just something he was trying to do. It was like, this is, this is what makes a Beck song, is it? <laughs> like, I will repeat this one line and I'm like, I wish you wouldn't. See, it works in Evil Genius in his one of his later albums. Yeah. He does that same thing in Evil Genius, and it works because it's funny there. But he's also intentionally being funny. Or, um, I don't remember if this is the title, but Belvedere, the children's pioneer. He I, does it in that song, too. Mm. And that song is like a relentless fucking earworm. I, I still like <laughs> it, but um, not on this album, though. It's from a much later album. Yes. Um, so I think that... It's really hard to pick a favorite on this album. Um, probably, so I think the best song in terms of like craftsmanship and just overall package is "The Sadness of Things." Yes. Um, which is not on the version of the CD that I have, which is the one that came out in Japan, despite the song being co-written with a Japanese artist. Okay. I had never heard that song until. I started listening to this to the album on Spotify to get ready for this, and I was like, "Wait, what's this last song?" And I had, I hadn't actually heard that because we were both sharing your Japanese version of yeah. the album. I hadn't heard that song until you got me the uh, pub, public intellectual two uh, LP collection that he put out in twenty sixteen, and it's on there. And he's really proud of that song. I think. Yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's a, a J-pop song though. It doesn't sound like Momus. No, it's but it's a good song. And the and you know what's the the great thing about this? We had this argument uh, a while back where I said Nick Curry can sing, and you're like, no, he can't. And I'm like, yes, he can. And this album proves that he can. 
but it's an it's not a conventional kind of singing. I mean, he does Henry Higgins talk singing most of the time. I mean, he's allowed. <laughs> no, I, I think it's great. It really works. I mean, it works amazingly well with his lyrics. Um, yeah, so the sadness of things is great. I think that sort of the centerpiece of the album, though, is the Cabinet of Kuniyoshi Kaneko. Which is my favorite song on the album. Which, interest, I mean... I think it's interesting that on an album called The Philosophy of Momus, with a song called The Philosophy of Momus, the cabinet of Kuniyoshi Kaneko is the actual philosophy of Momus. Yes. Not the song with that title. Um, and it's a song about um, various sort of outcast artists or... Um, I mean, really the theme of the song is in in games there can be no forbidden things, like anything goes in art. A painted girl is not a girl is one of the lines. And it makes reference to uh, Kuniyoshi Kanako make, uh, doing an illustration of uh, Alice in Wonderland. and it's But he did it in a bondage aesthetic. Yeah, it, it was a CD-ROM, wasn't it? No, it's, it was an actual book. It was a printed... Okay, because I think he did a CD-ROM that Momus was like inspired by too. That was also very. Well, he was prolific. Um, like yeah, very skeevy in in some ways. But like I've, I mean, I've seen his Alice in Wonderland illustrations, and I think that like they're really great. Oh yeah, that's why it's like he just. It's one of the, there's the seediness of great Japanese artists. It's kind of something that very much appeals to Momus. Yeah, but it's like, and honest. I mean, I'll be honest. It appeals to me too. Oh yeah, time. yeah. But it's because you, you, and I love the, I love the aesthetic of like you're so good at something that you just break it with perversion, and that becomes part of the of the beauty of the thing that you're doing. And I love that. I mean, it's one of the reasons that hentai manga, like uh, the guy who basically invented tentacle porn, <laughs> his his prints are so revered because it's terrifying, but. It's really well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so that kind of uh, gets on to another thing that I really love about this album, which is I'm really interested in the idea of like nostalgia for things you never experienced. And that's what this album is for me. It's This album makes me so nostalgic for when I lived in Japan in 1995, which I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to Japan for the first time until 1999. And where, where I bought this album and walked around Osaka listening to this album a whole lot. <laughs> um, and it is, it's permanently stuck in, uh, you know, like rainy, rainy season Japan, walking around big cities with all the lights like melting into the wet streets. Like, that's what this album is to me. And I love the references to like satellite uplink and slide projector lie detector where he talks about you know video eight and all this you know the the high tech of the 90s and it was this moment that i could you could only have made this album in 1995 because afterwards we were already starting to move on um and just technologically this is this album is a one one year span that mainly happened in Japan. It was like the the line keeping my soul alive playing Mortal Kombat 2 on the Mega Drive. Yeah, like, that was the first time I, I didn't know what a Mega Drive was when I first heard that song. I, I didn't know that that was what the Genesis was called outside of the U.S. So the, I was really confused. Like, a Mega Drive? What the fuck is that? But the way that Virtual Valerie sounds and that line just like instantly you you were tied into the mid-90s in a way that you can't escape. <laughs> Have you ever seen the actual Virtual Valerie? No. Oh, God, it's a... You should look it up. It's a whole thing. 
so another some some pornographic software that's mm. very pre Tomb Raider sexy polygon lady, by which I mean not sexy at all. <laughs> and now Hadrian is doodling virtual Valerie. Oh, okay. So hilariously, I believe virtual Valerie was later used as the model for the Game Shark. Uh, it girl. So there was a loading. There was a loading screen with a girl on a motorcycle, and it's just. Wow, it's I did just, not know that. Yeah, it, it's just this uh, virtual Valerie too, but she has her tits covered, essentially. Like, oh man. Yeah. I like that she is like riding the Akira motorcycle in that picture. Yeah. So, I always thought that was a a bit strange, but only you know dweebs used game sharks in the nineties. <laughs> I was a real gamer. I've never used a game shark, so I'd never seen that before. <laughs> I liked breaking video games. <laughs> um. Okay. So. I guess, so how much do you think the stylistic clash of the album should be counted against it? Because I I don't think you can just say, well, it sure turns into a great synth-pop album after the first six songs, so let's just ignore those. I think think that's definitely a weight against it, because if it had gone either way, I think it would have been stronger if you'd put out just an EP, or if it had just been the synth-pop part of the album. It's... I think it's it's really marking a, a transition in Momus' state of mind, where he had a little bit more clarity to explore things, but still went back to the things he enjoyed doing. And that plays through on the album, and I think it's important because of that. But no one needs a 19-track <laughs> album. There, there are things I would have just flat-out cut, and... Yeah, I mean, he's an artist who is in that weird position. And and I read an interview with him, actually. This was the first album that he recorded entirely from home. And it, it feels that way because there's... It's... And he said, he said in the interview that now... Because he was talking about Used To, I Would Write. Well, he specifically was talking about I Have a Girl versus an Inflatable Doll, which if you haven't heard them, it's... The same, the exact same music, and he wrote two different, two completely different sets of lyrics from it, and released both versions. Um, and he was saying, like, oh, like used to when I wrote songs, I would they would be a lot more like an inflatable doll, and then they would get polished into. I had a girl while I was waiting for studio time, and now I'm recording from home, and I can just release everything. And Which... that's kind of been his problem ever since. If you want to cite maybe his biggest weekend weakness, it's that he releases everything. Yeah, because even the greatest writers of all time could do with just even a passing edit. Yeah. And having recently read one of Momus' books, I also think that's true. I think Momus has an aboundless creative energy that sometimes needs someone going, don't. Just don't do this one thing. Everything else is great. Just do not release Girlish Boy. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, or someone to tell him, like, Breathless is, like, a bad song, and it absolutely should not be the last song on Time Lord. Oh, God. <laughs> you no. should not end your your suicidally depressed synth-pop album with a, like, smarmy jazz ballad. Oh, you do if, you do if you're Momus. It, right, but it's, it, it's just that... Um... Yeah, and also I I don't think lyrically that this album is as much as I love it and as much as it 
is really, I mean, like I said, I, ha- I have that nostalgia. It gives me that nostalgia for a place that I never lived. I don't think it's as strong as, um, as definitely not as strong as Time Lord. I mean, Voyager is not really a lyrics album. That's a very trancey album. Yes. Um, but let's just say like the best Momus songs. I, I don't think it's on par with his best work. No, I mean the the songs like I when we first got together and I took your entire Momus collection and was like, I'm gonna rip this. <laughs> um, because I'd only heard like three Momus songs before then, and I was like, oh, I have this un- I have this treasure. Um, I took the Cabinet of uh, Kuniyoshi Kanako Withinity and toothbrush head from that and put it on playlists mm-hmm. those are the three songs i pulled from the album and for me those are the most remem- rem- like memorable songs yeah i, I mean those I, I think yokohama chinatown is a great song i like that song now i think when i was first listening to this album i wasn't in a really great headspace to want to listen to music like this it's of all the wannabe beck songs it's by far the best of all of them and i don't even get beck vibes from it i mean it's, I, I mean I, he's rapping and it's he's rapping and there's like acoustic guitar that, that's that, that's not a Beck song make, but well, and it's I mean it's pretty grungy by Moma's standards too. Was Beck grunge? No, I don't mean grunge as in the, the genre. I mean grunge as in it sounds dirty. Yeah, well, see, but then I think about the like, uh... oh god, what is that album? What he recorded through a speaker? Uh, the Ultra Conformist. Yes, the Ultra Conformist. See, that sounds dirty. Well, yeah, but that's intentionally trying to sound like it was recorded that in the early favorite, 1900s. That is one of my favorite Momus albums, too. Wow. Well, we'll talk about that one eventually. Yep, I love it. So, <laughs> get prepared to fight. Yeah, that's going to be a fight for me, because that is not one of my favorites. Well, anything else you want to say about the philosophy of Momus? I I still fucking love it. It's This album, mean, it, it's very important to me. It means a lot to me. I'm being kind of nice to it, because I know you have that nostalgic hook, and I yeah. really, there's no reason to be mean about it, because... I can totally get that vibe, and I get the sense of place that you're feeling. I've never been to Japan, but... I get the same... I have the same attachment to 20 Vodka Jellies, because I also bought it. Actually, I bought both of them at the same store in Japan, (laughs) Um, because it was... You can find Momus album. You just walk into a music store and buy a Momus album in Japan. It's amazing. Um, You can buy several. Um, But yeah, like both of those albums make me extremely nostalgic for mid-90s Japan that I didn't live through. Um, but anyway, yeah, so... You you start us off on the ranking, because... Uh, I, mean, I think it's the second best album of the 90s. Uh, that's what I was afraid you were going to say. I, I Just on lyrics alone, it's so much better than, than Morning Glory. Cabinet of Queen Yoshi Kaniko is so fucking I know, fantastic. I know, Yokohama and... Chinatown is fantastic. <sighs> Sadness of things. Yeah, but I mean, but if we but if we start on this on this path, where does it end? Because we're gonna keep being like, well, this album's the best album, and then this album's the best album. No, I I. Totally... I mean, maybe they are. <laughs> I'm joking. I don't think I'm... that this will stay at the top for a long time. No. I mean, it's it's every uh, not every other, but I mean, there are at least two other Momus albums from the '90s that are that I'm gonna fight to put ahead of it. But I. I can't see putting putting this below Oasis, any Oasis album. That's a it's a bold claim. No, um, I, I I can agree with you. I think we can move it to number one. 
I I think if we had a a realistic approach to how things were viewed in its decade, Morning Glory would stay on top. But I'm willing to budge. <laughs> Because I didn't budge on Manscaped, and I like this album a thousand percent more than Manscaped. Oh, I mean, I do too. Because, yeah. fuck Manscaped. But, yeah, we can make this the, the greatest album of the, of the 90s, right? Yeah, and, and who knows how long it'll stay that way, but um, I, I think it's, I think even divorced from my feelings about it, like, there's enough, it's like no song by song, it, I mean, there, there are no songs that I would say I dislike on morning glory and there is at least one song that i actively hate on this album (laughs) yeah but also and and i don't want to say well there's so much more though like there are as many songs on this album that i love as there are songs on morning glory there's more range and artistry in the philosophy of Elvis than there is in uh, what's the story morning he has way more to say he experiments way more which those two things matter a lot that to was me. the whole reason that we that i was fighting for uh monster above manscape because monster they were at least trying something different manscape was doing the same thing and sounding the same but <laughs> I, I disagree but we ha- we have to leave that disagreement in the past even though looking at more albums there's so many albums that i think are worse than manscape and better than monster <laughs> that it's gonna be a fucking thorn in our side for this entire podcast um but yeah, leaving that in the past for now, I, I I honestly do think that this is a better record than Morning Glory, and not just because it makes me want to go play uh, Satella View games and watch pornographic anime. Well, we know one's stopping you, but... <laughs> it's, pre- it's a little tough to emulate Satella View games. But yeah, I, I, I can budge on this one. Because I know what you're in for next week. Yeah. Yeah. Next week's going to be some shit. But and next week, I roll water down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that goes. But yes. So let's let's set it in stone. The Philosophy of Momus. New best album. New best alternative album of the 90s. Followed by What's the Story? Morning Glory, Monster, and Manscape. And we need to get a list on the internet that people can look at. Uh, yeah, we can put it on my website. Uh, if you're listening to this on the internet, if we don't have our RSS feed set up yet, you're probably listening it listening to it at luciferslarder.com. And I forget your YouTube channel. Uh, I, I don't know how YouTube links work, but if you search... In our 1990s on YouTube, I bet it'll come up. It's actually the number one hit. That's like like when I typed it in to try to find it to share, I typed in, in our 1990s. Turns out nobody else decided to name their podcast after a Pet Shop Boys line that they slightly changed. Yep. (laughs) Nerd. All right, so we'll be back next week with more of this shit. And, um... In the meantime, we'll get our RSS feed set up, and you can subscribe to this thing, and we would really appreciate it if you did so. It'll be on all the Twitters. And next week, we'll be doing some albums that are real different from Momus. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody.